0: Well thank you for that really warm introduction um, as you said I do actually spend um, much more of my time speaking to healthcare professionals about um, what we know about infant sleep from um, a research um, point of view and that research perspective as an anthropologist, I count myself as a, um, an anthropologist with kind of interests in all possible streams of anthropology. Um, Uh, and represents really sort of an evolutionary perspective um, combined with a socio-cultural um, perspective on infant care um, in uh, in Western societies and also in traditional societies and from the past. Uh, So I spend a lot of my time trying to explain this research to healthcare professionals and explain what the implications are um, of that research for their practice and for what parents need to know um, about um, infant care. So it's actually really lovely to come and speak to an academic audience for a change, um, and I hope that um, what I have to say will be useful to you. Alright, so if you want to save any questions until the end, I think we've got quite a good damn, a chunk of time available for answering questions, so that would be lovely. Okay, so what I really want to get over um, in my talk today is um, how. Um, Research from evolutionary anthropology and from um, sort of cross-cultural perspectives and all the things that you guys will be familiar with can actually be really useful out there in the wider world and how it can have a real impact um, in tackling what can seem like quite intractable um, healthcare issues. Um, And I hope that that will be quite inspiring to you because I know that um, when I first sort of started out um, as an undergrad and even to some degree when I was um, doing my postgraduate studies, um, a lot of what I was concerned about was, well, what, you know, what, how can how can this research be useful? How can it make a difference? You know, who cares, really, um, what um, Durkheim says about this or that or the other? I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the, the thing I know least about. So let's just get back off that topic and onto the stuff I actually know about. Um, the sleep lab at Durham, just to give you a little bit of background before I move on, has... Um, probably been best known for its work on parent-infant bed sharing Um, and it was actually founded by my my lab director, Helen Ball, um, to allow us to observe what happens when parents and babies sleep together in a bed. So that's where the sleep lab um, came from and we also did um, a load of ethnographic research, a sort of survey work looking at the prevalence of bed sharing and the reasons for bed sharing. Um, And by bed-sharing, I should say, um, right at the beginning, what I mean by that is um, a mother or other caregiver and a baby sleeping together in an adult bed. So um, some healthcare professionals actually use a different definition. They use bed-sharing to mean babies being fed um, awake in bed. So that's not what I mean, just to clarify. Um, Since we've done that research, um, we've gone on and we've looked at um, infant sleep and feeding um, in other environments in the parents' home, we've looked at it in hospitals, um, and we've sort of ventured into other areas of infant sleep and sleep safety, and we also do a lot of work which focuses now on um, normal infant sleep development. A lot of what is out there in sort of popular knowledge about how babies should sleep, Um, comes from work which was done in the 1950s and it focused on babies who were formula-fed and who were sleeping in a separate bedroom away from the parents. And our ideas about how babies' um, sleep develops through time come from that period. And, of course, as an evolutionary anthropologist, I would say those babies weren't behaving normally. You know, they weren't sleeping in an environment um, which is normal for human infants. And I'll explain why that is in a minute. Um, But to the title of my talk, um, and a little bit more um, of a serious issue, I suppose, um, I want to kick off um, by discussing um, sudden infant death syndrome and what it is. Do any of you already know what sudden infant death syndrome is? Yeah, some people will do um, for various reasons. But for most people, they would probably know it better um, as cot death. Um, and Sudden Infant Death Syndrome is um, a classification um, which really only um, was defined in 1965 um, in the International um, Classification of D- Diseases 8 um, when SIDS was designated for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome and what that basically means is uh, when a baby dies And with a post-mortem and a comprehensive death scene investigation, no cause for that death can be found. Um, So it's distinct from other um, infant deaths which might be designated sudden unexpected infant deaths, which can include deaths which occur due to, for example, suffocation, um, falls, accidents, um, other causes that can be identified. So SIDS is used as a designation when none of those causes could be found and a baby dies apparently um, for no reason and it was previously healthy. Um, And most of these deaths, in fact all these deaths really happen during sleep. Um, Most of them happen at night but actually um, a significant minority of them happen during daytime naps. Um, So it's during sleep that um, these things happen. it can be difficult distinguishing between SIDS and some sudden unexpected infant death in that um, pathologically, for example, there's um, sometimes no way to tell between SIDS and a soft suffocation. So um, the distinction between the two categories can be, can be blurred in that sense and then when you start looking at the research, which tends to focus on SIDS because accidental deaths seem uh, perhaps... Uh, easier to explain and um, tackle, um, it's important to remember that there actually may be some crossover between SIDS deaths um, for which the cause isn't known um, and deaths which actually did have a cause but we just can't tell. It, right? So it's actually it's a really complicated issue to tackle. Um, and of course one of the primary questions then is how do you try and stop something happening? when you don't know why it happens in the first place. And we'll go on to uh, discuss ways you can do that later. But um, first I want to introduce you to this model which is the current best model for understanding how hit happens in some babies but not in other babies. Um, and, it's, and it's quite a simple model actually. What we know about SIDS is that it primarily happens within actually quite a small time frame during a baby's development. And the vast majority of SIDS deaths, although SIDS can um, be designated um, in a baby from any age from one month to one year, the vast majority of the deaths happen between about six weeks or five or six weeks and about 13 to 15 weeks. So they happen in this very small time frame. And if you know anything about um, infant development, this actually happens to also be um, the period of time in which some significant physiological changes are happening in infants in terms of their um, sort of breathing control, um, their physiology, their ability to regulate um, aspects of their own physiology, um, and development of sort of circadian rhythms and um, hormonal um, rhythms. So a lot is going on in babies in this particular time period that we see SIDS occurring. And that's what's meant by this critical developmental period here. The next aspect is that we must have, in this model for SIDS to occur, a vulnerable infant. And there are several factors which have been identified, um, which contribute to an infant being vulnerable as opposed to not vulnerable to SIDS. Males babies are more likely to die from um, more likely to experience SIDS than uh, females. Premature babies, Um, and for example, um, exposure to cigarettes um, or alcohol prenatally. So this adds to this um, to make a vulnerable baby at a vulnerable time. And then the final aspect of this triple risk model um, is that there must be an exogenous stressor. So this is a stressor which uh, makes the baby um, vulnerable, if you like, from the outside. Um, And through case control studies, I don't know if you've done any work on um, methodology involving case control studies, but it's where you compare babies who did uh, experience a SIDS death with babies who didn't experience a SIDS death. Several risk factors have been identified and these include things like um, sleeping on the front or on the side, bed sharing and we'll talk about that a lot more in a moment, um, over wrapping babies so they come um, become too hot perhaps, um, soft bedding um, and covering of baby faces. So there are these three factors then in this model which if they all come together at one point may result in a sidestep. You can have any of them without one of those areas and theoretically at least according to this model you shouldn't have a SIDS death occurring. Does that make sense? Yeah, all right. So this is important because when we're looking at ways of reducing um, SIDS, it's really primarily these factors which must be targeted. You can't do anything about a development period or babies must go through it obviously. Um, Really you can't do a lot about babies being male or Um, you know, some um, prenatal um, conditions. But theoretically at least you can change some of these. And so these form the focus of SIDS reduction campaigns. Alright, so in this next section I'm going to step sideways. And I'm going to look a bit at um, evolutionary um, biology and infant care. And then we're going to come back to what all this means for um, SIDS campaigns. Alright, so we need to think of babies um, as not just humans, but as members of the primate order um, and as mammals, as animals. What are babies like? If we look at them as we would look at any other animal, what can we tell about human infants? And what does this mean for the care that they expect? Well, of course, humans are uh, mammals. And you can divide mammalian infants into two um, groups, essentially. And those are groups um, where uh, babies are effectively nested, as opposed to babies which aren't nested after birth. And we call these um, babies who end up in a nest for part of their development, autricial, and babies who uh, don't end up in a nest um, for their development, precocial. So you can see that um, at the point of birth, um, infants which uh, would fall into the altricial group still have a load of development to do, whereas all that development happens in utero for precocial infants so that they're born at a very different stage of development. And you can also conceptualise this as being a distinction between caching a baby in a nest, or your babies, because these babies tend to come in litters, Um, Versus carrying your baby or or your baby clinging onto you or following you around, as with, for example, um, a foal. Um, So um, mammals which have altricial infants use an acacia strategy. Um, They tend to have multiple infants in a litter. Those infants are undeveloped at birth. They don't have the ability to kind of move themselves around terribly effectively. Um, they tend to be blind, and um, possibly um, you know, uh, hairless like that. And the mother leaves the infants in a nest um, for long periods of time while she goes off and forages to feed herself. And these infants therefore feed infrequently, possibly twice a day, um, on milk which is high um, in fat content and therefore takes a long time to digest. So these infants are left alone in a nest for protection, Um, and are fed infrequently. Whereas in contrast, precocial infants, so most primates, um, and as I say, horses for example, um, have just one infant at a time, the infant is able to maintain its own proximity with its mother, that's critical, either by clinging on um, or by following the mother around. So the mother can provide the safety and the warmth that the infant needs, Um, while she forages to feed herself, and therefore the infant can feed frequently and the milk composition of precocial infants is quite different. Um, It's lower in fat and higher in sugar, so it's digested much more quickly. So frequent feeds happen because the milk's um, digested quickly. So, a question for you, where do humans fit? Humans have a really interesting um, mixture of characteristics. Like most primates, we have um, single infants with well-developed organs, they can see, they can hear, um, they can call out, so that fits into the precocial pattern. Um, the milk is low fat and high sugar, so must free- happen uh, frequently, and again that fits into the precocial pattern. But the infants have poorly developed neuromuscular control. They can't really maintain their own proximity to the mother. The mother needs to do that. And that fits more into the ultratricial pattern. So um, humans are described as being secondarily ultratricial. And so we're going to come back to that um, idea in a minute. But I did just want to include this picture which came up while (coughs) I was putting this all together which demonstrates, of course, as anyone who has a baby knows, that they can actually have quite a powerful (laughs) grasp and for a time could, you know, hang from a stick. If you wanted to hang a baby from a stick, you could do it uh, for a little while. But, you know, a combination of um, the the lack of development and lack of control, the fact that we're hairless uh, means that ultimately it's down to the mother to make sure the baby stays near here. And anyone who has any experience with babies knows that when the baby isn't near the mother, it lets you know about it. It lets you know that it it wants to be. So I'm going to move on now and talk a little bit about um, sleep location and bed sharing in particular, bearing in mind what we now know about evolved um, infant biology. One of the reasons, um, or at least the reason why human infants have this sort of ne- neurological <laughs> immaturity is due to what you might something you might have heard of already which is known as the evolutionary obstetrical conflict uh, which basically means that human infants are born with brains which are quite small compared to uh, um, other animals and if you have a look at this um, chart here um, it shows the rate of brain growth for human infants and you can see that rate in utero and this is the point of birth And you can see that that rate of brain growth carries on at pretty much exactly the same rate until the infant is one year um, old. Um, And in most precocial um, animals and in other primates that rate would tail off at birth. So there there would be a change in the speed of brain growth there. Um, So there, there are several hypotheses about why this occurs and the best well known of course is to do with bipedalism and the shape of the human pelvis limiting the size of the head that could get through it physically um, an alternate h- hypothesis focuses on um, the mother's um, based on metabolic rate and the ability of the mother to actually carry a baby beyond a certain size for a certain length of time whatever the reason it means that humans have a baby which is neurologically underdeveloped and has an extremely fast rate of growth to maintain after birth. So bearing in mind that we're feeding this milk, which is quite high in sugar and low in fat, and we need really frequent feeds to maintain that rate of growth. Um, And that needs to happen during the night as well as during the day. And it's very common for um, human newborns to be feeding every sort of 90 minutes to to two hours, as again, um, many mothers will have experience of. Um, We also know that frequent feeds during the night time are really important for the initiation of lactation and for the maintenance of lactation long term. And I think a lot of us um, who have um, parents or uh, grandparents who had babies went in the days of nurseries. um, I mean, certainly talking to my mother, um, she said that she found um, initiating breastfeeding to be very difficult But then she told me that she was in hospital for two weeks after I was born, and I was taken away to the nursery every night. You know, um, we now know that the stimulation which um, is experienced hormonally by feeding, particularly at night, impacts on the mother's hormones in such a way that milk production is stimulated, um, and that that stimulation is essential for establishing and maintaining longer-term breastfeeding. So it's no wonder that people found breastfeeding to be difficult. Anyway, that was a little diversion. Um, so if you've got to feed a baby at night, um, how do you do it? If the baby is sleeping in a different room or in a cot and it's going to be feeding every couple of hours, it doesn't really want to settle on its own, you can pretty easily see, even those of you um, without kids I'm sure, how this can become an untenable situation for mothers. Um, and one of the... Um, key ways that um, people deal with this is to bring the baby into bed. The baby's right next to you, um, the baby can feed um, uh, at will or as much as you like and you don't have to keep getting out of bed um, all night. Um, so the studies I found, including studies that we've done in the lab, the NICOT trial that you mentioned earlier, that Mums and babies who uh, bedshare at home breastfeed more and breastfeed for longer, um, and this has been found in many studies across the world, um, so it's, it's quite a well-known relationship. What we don't really know so well is what direction that relationship occurs in. Is it bedsharing that leads to breastfeeding or breastfeeding that leads to bedsharing? I think that there's a positive feedback loop and both um, make the other more likely. Um, But we also see um, that breastfeeding goes on for longer, and mums and babies get um, more sleep when they're bed sharing. So there are lots of benefits. um, As I mentioned earlier, some of the earliest work in the lab that we did um, demonstrated just how common um, adoption of a bed sharing strategy is. Um, even in um, a culture like our own where we have a sort of a historical um, precedent for advising against bedsharing and wanting babies to sleep on their own and um, more recently um, avoiding it because of the risk of SIDS which I'll talk about in a minute, um, it's still really common and 50% of all babies will bedshare with their um, mother by the time they're one month old. And that's actually an even bigger figure for breastfed babies, uh, where we see 75% um, sleeping with their mum at some point by the time they're one-month-old. So it's an incredibly common um, behaviour, and again, this is something that is seen worldwide. There are studies from the States, Australia, New Zealand, um, South Africa, um, all over the Western world, we see these kinds of figures coming up. Um, And the research that we did in the lab shows... How bed sharing happens. And with breastfeeding mothers, we see um, a very characteristic position being adopted. We see what we call the protective C, um, and the Americans call the cuddle curl, um, which basically involves (coughs) the mum lying on her side with her arm above the baby's head, her knees drawn up under the baby's feet. And this prevents the baby from moving around in a bed because an adult bed is a very different environment from that which humans would have evolved in. It can actually be quite dangerous for the risk of suffocation no overheating, because so all the duvets and so on. But this position um, affords some protection from that. The baby is constrained by the mother's body. Um, while the baby can lie on its side to feed, it can't easily roll on its front, and the mum can't easily roll onto the baby because of this position. Um, there's easy access to the breast. And mum and baby face each other during the night. Um, We never see breastfeeding mums more than a baby's arm length away from their baby, so the baby can always communicate um, with the mother. mother. And we also see um, sleep synchrony. So mums and babies arouse from sleep quite frequently when they're sleeping together, Um, but they go back to sleep very quickly as well. And those arousals um, from sleep are not um, of long duration. Um, And again, this has been um, seen in a couple of other studies done around the world. We've seen this position adopted in people in our lab, in um, parents' homes when we've taken cameras into their homes, and we've also seen it on the first night postnatally on a hospital ward, uh, even with first-time mums. So anyone who's breastfeeding um, and bed showing, we can expect them to adopt this position. So that's for breastfeeding mums. Um, as a side note, we did also look at some formula-feeding mums in our study, um, and we found that they slept quite differently with their babies. Uh, we were comparing bed sharing with um, cot-sleeping, and We found that the formula-feeding mums were more likely to put their babies, so their heads were up on the pillows, face-to-face face with the mum, which I suppose is a natural thing to do if you don't need that um, easy access to the breast. Um, They weren't as likely to curl around the baby like this, Um, they they didn't face the baby as consistently throughout the night as our breastfeeding mums did, Um, and their their sleep was not so synchronous. So we um, suggested that this might um, indicate that bed sharing might not be as safe for for the babies of formula feeding mums as for breastfeeding mums. And incidentally, if um, a a mum had ever uh, breastfed, even if she wasn't breastfeeding that baby, she would sleep in the breastfeeding um, kind of position. Um, So from those um, findings, um, quite a lot of people have kind of run with that and said, you know, formula feeding mums shouldn't bed share with their babies. Um, And I always like to, to caution at this point in my talks that we only had 10 formula feeding mums in that study, and nobody else has ever looked at formula feeding mums bed sharing. So, you know, uh, I don't think it's appropriate or valid to base a recommendation to all formula feeding mums based on our 10 mums in this study. It's interesting. I think that more research definitely needs to be done. But I think there are other questions you can ask formula feeding mums rather than telling them that. No. All right, so um, so I hope I've convinced you that babies and mums are kind of designed to be together. Um, and actually, I'll just put this slide in to make the point that um, if it weren't for that need for close contact, there wouldn't be such a big market for things that parents need for their babies to allow us to put our babies down in a nest, Okay, shall babies, and walk away which is what we apparently should be doing um, and what um, we're told we need to do and this is uh, unbelievably a real thing these are hand-shaped sort of cushions um, presumably designed to make your baby feel like it's kind of got some kind of pressure on its body um, I, I was uh, amazed when i first came across this it's a real thing you can buy But I mean there's baby hammocks, there's dummies, there's rocking bouncers, there's sleeping bags which will stop your baby getting cold so it won't wake up, there's machines which make white noise and beating heart toys and medication and formula to stop your baby getting hungry in the night and bath time products with lavender and sleep training regimes written by people with absolutely no authority or uh, research experience whatsoever and books and CDs and everything, you know, and parents can spend thousands of pounds on um, products which they're told that they must have for their baby's uh, well-being and safety, um, and um, are designed to make that baby happy to be left alone, which parents think they, they need to do. They think they need their baby to be able to um, sleep independently. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. And to move on to another study that we um, did a couple of years ago, um, we looked at um, infant care practices in two different communities in one town. One of the questions we're often asked is, about SIDS is um, uh, you know, why, why are SIDS rates very different in different populations? And those populations are not necessarily um, spread over large ge- geographic areas, they can be different groups of people within the same geographic area. And so we looked at um, Asian families and white British families living in Bradford, which I don't know if you know Bradford, but it's a little town up north, um, which is quite, um, has quite a lot of deprived areas, um, quite high SID rates, um, and um, a very large um, Asian population. Um, And within that population, um, the Asian families' babies have a four times lower SIDS risk than the white British um, babies, and yet they also, funnily enough, have a four times higher bed sharing rate. Um, Their infant care practices are very um, dramatically different, Um, and what we found from our study is that South Asian families employ employ what you might call proximal care strategies. (coughs) So, they um, keep babies in physical contact with the mother or um, another caregiver pretty much all the time. Um, they breastfeed um, as a norm and they, they breastfeed for quite a long period of time. Um, and there's very little sort of interference in the normal um, developmental trajectory of the infant. So, they're not pushing their babies to sleep alone or sleep earlier or sleep longer or, or develop at anything other than the kind of the, the, the rate that they develop at. Whereas, um, what we see with the British families is quite a different pattern of care. Um, so we see earlier cessation of breastfeeding um, and we see a real emphasis on lonely sleep and self-soothing. Um, and there are other differences in these groups as well, um, in that we have lower um, smoking rates and alcohol consumption rates in the Asian families. There's very little sofa sharing in the Asian families. And this is a really interesting um, uh, point where doing this kind of cross-cultural work, and these were interview studies, um, really tells us some of the fine detail that we wouldn't have otherwise from an epidemiological survey um, or or study. Um, And, for example, one of our um, Asian participants said, you know, we would never sleep with our baby on the sofa. We would never sleep on the sofa because it's just not something we would ever consider doing. You know, the sofa is part of the the living room, which is part of the social area of the house. And to, you know, put your feet up and snuggle down on the sofa would just be, you know, something that they they wouldn't comprehend of doing. So falling asleep with the baby on the sofa was equally unlikely in this group. Um, And um, the sofa is one of the areas where SIDS um, and suffocations are most likely to happen with babies. So, you know, there's, there's these sort of small cultural um, differences that are very important in terms of the consequences for infant care um, and for SIDS. So you might say that um, the, the Asian families are employing infant care strategies which are more congruent with the evolved needs um, of infants. And some years ago, um, long before we did this study, um, a, a researcher called James McKenna and colleagues um, who um, are, sort of do work similar to us within the states, um, suggested that this mismatch between Western in- infant care practices, which um, focuses, focus on low sleep and sort of separation, um, with underdeveloped human babies might contribute to an explanation for the high rates of SIDS that we see um, in, in Western um, populations. And they further hypothesised that close contact between mums and babies might therefore protect against SIDS. Um, but we've never seen that in epidemiological studies. Um, bed sharing has always come out as being a risk factor for SIDS, um, although closer contact in the form of room sharing and not putting your baby to sleep in a separate room um, is, is protected. Um, so, so putting your baby to sleep in a separate room is a risk for SIDS, and that kind of does go some way to support McKenna's hypothesis. But actually, um, to our great excitement, uh, just over a year ago, um, our colleagues Peter Blair and co-in uh, from Bristol. Um, published a reanalysis of uh, some case c- control um, data, which they got together previously. Um, and they were able to um, find there that if you took out many of the factors that we now know interact with bed sharing to increase the risk of SIDS, and those factors include um, alcohol consumption, sofa sharing, um, and smoking, that you are left with no increased risk for babies um, under three months from bed sharing and actually you get an effect in the direction of protection for babies over three months. So that's really exciting because um, the problem we have with research which has been done in the past is that people have just looked at bed sharing and it's taken a long time to realise that actually it seems to be bed sharing plus other factors which lead to an increased risk of SIDS. And to get together enough data, because SIDS is fortunately very rare, to be able to do statistical analyses where you can pull out everyone who smoked or took alcohol or slept on the sofa. And then you're left with a very, very small group of babies who experience SIDS in the absence of those additional factors. Um, And then you're able to find out um, just how risky bad sharing is. And increasingly... (coughs) Um, we're finding that bed sharing in itself doesn't appear to really significantly um, increase the risk of SIDS. All right, so what does that mean for SIDS reduction? And this is the bit which really is of interest, I suppose, to people who are designing policies, so safeguarding teams, um, health visitors, um, infant care, infant feeding teams, and so on and so forth. But this is a bit where I hope you will find interesting to see how an evolutionary perspective can inform innovation. Um, so the majority of the interventions that I'm going to talk to you about take into account this um, sort of evolutionary perspective and we consider the biological needs of babies and cultural appropriateness. If you tell um, people whose um, cultural um, uh, approach to infant care is to keep their babies close not to they're going to to ignore it because it's not relevant to them. They don't think it's um, something that applies to them. Um, And we also consider parent infant trade-offs so we can understand barriers to the implementation of traditional SIDS um, reduction approaches and uh, offer new um, options to people. But first, uh, this is the kind of, well, it's actually contemporary, but it's the kind of traditional approach to SIDS reduction. Um, and what you've got here, you'll remember from the triple risk um, model slide I showed, um, is basically um, the extrinsic um, risk factors which are being tackled. So these are what people consider to be modifiable risk factors, risk, risk factors which are amenable to change, that people can have some control over. So um, a big one in, uh, I think, the severely to mid-90s, if I call correctly, Um, was the initiation of the back-to-sleep campaign. Um, Before that, babies were um, habitually put down on their tummies, which is actually where babies like to sleep because it makes them feel more secure. Um, But it was discovered through um, epidemiological research that babies who slept on their tummies were at higher risk of SIDS, um, possibly due to reduced arousability, um, uh, possibly due to um, other factors, um, reducing airflow and so on and so forth. But the back to sleep campaign was, um, was launched and had a really really big impact i mean hundreds of thousands of babies um, worldwide have not died because of the back to sleep campaign um, and it was quite an easy one to initiate although babies do prefer to sleep on their tummies it's you know for most parents it's no skin off their nose, really, whether you put the baby on its back or on its front, you know, and if you can put it on its back, then fine, and if it's happy, great. And that saved um, a lot of anxiety. Um Putting your baby to sleep in the same room as you, again, is quite easy, relatively easy to do. Um, you know, choosing a mattress, making sure it's a clean one, uh, rather than one that uh, isn't. Um, is again quite easy to do. But then you have some harder things. We have cessation of smoking. That's really hard, you know, for an addict to give up their drug. Uh, it's a hard thing for people to do. That's not been so successful. Um, and breastfeeding. Again, breastfeeding rates in this country are absolutely appalling. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to tackle. But anyway, these are all things which are modifiable risk factors. And this is a card which is produced by the Lullaby Trust, which is the UK's. Um, campaigning organisation for reducing SIDS. So it's fairly uh, straightforward. But with bed sharing, just telling people not to do it doesn't have any effect. So people have taken a different line. Um, So I'll just let you have a look at these for a minute. This um, is um, a roadside billboard from the States which says, never sleep with your baby. Don't let me be the last doctor to see your baby. I do autopsies which is particularly delightful. Uh, This reads, for too many babies last year, this was their final resting place. I hope you can see, okay, there it's an adult bed with a sort of a tombstone headboard. And this is from the UK, this is from Manchester. Um, And you can clearly see it's quite a stark message that which parents have been given. So, you know, people... Oh, dear. (laughs) I'll let you have a, a, a... People didn't start out using these kind of scare tactics and strategies to, um, to try and make people avoid bed sharing. They used a simple message, they said don't bed share. But for all the reasons that I've discussed when we've looked at the evolved needs of babies and cultural um, aspects of infant care, that didn't have any effect. So, so these kinds of, um, uh, sort of campaigns became uh, quite prominent. And one of the other things that we find, um, we have found anecdotally, and I actually did a study last year to get proper evidence for, um, was that it, sort of, uh, it forces people into other environments. So if you can't sleep with your baby on the bed, and maybe you've got a partner who has to work, uh, the baby's unsettled, it doesn't want to go to sleep in its cot, which is normal, you know, we expect that now, but parents don't know what to do with it. Uh, One of the things they do is they take their babies down onto the sofa. Um, And I talked earlier about odds ratios and risk um, emanating from case control studies. Um, And to to put into context how risky the sofa environment is, if smoking doubles your infants and sleeping with it on a sofa um, increases it by 60 times, right? So, you know, in an attempt to avoid bed sharing, which with really understanding now is not a significantly dangerous environment in the absence of, you know, factors of smoking. Drugs, um, people are taking their babies into an environment which is actually even more dangerous. Um, and one of the problems that we have and that we actually try and tackle by going and speaking to healthcare professionals is that the information, the evidence relating to SIDS, is so appears so complex and the messages which have been given to parents are so contradictory that healthcare professionals really sort of try and avoid talking about it because they feel if they bring up the topic they might put the idea into parents heads and the parents might do it and then if the baby dies you know are they going to get sued um you know we've worked with um, healthcare professionals in up north um who have been asked to sign uh, a form which says they have told the mother not to bedshare and that you know, they don't discuss it beyond that. What this means is they're not talking about how important alcohol is or how important smoking is or how to make bedsharing safe if they do find themselves doing it or to avoid sleeping on a sofa. You know, so we, we, um, one of the things Pete and co-found uh, was that um, while SIDS deaths are decreasing in almost all sleep environments, they're going on alright so no this kind of campaign isn't effective and um, uh, I would argue that it actually introduces more potential for harm um, and hazard um, than was there to start with Uh, so what I was going to show you um, now are a series of interventions which are more congruent with um, how mothers and babies um, have evolved to interact Um, The UNICEF Baby Friendly um, initiative um, is um, uh, an accreditation scheme for hospitals in the UK (coughs) Um, and it was established in 1992 and it's actually sort of a UNICEF um, World Health Organisation venture Um, and while it doesn't simply focus on bed sharing it does emphasise the need to discuss with parents the benefits of bed sharing as well as the contraindications and as a a sort of general rule the baby friendly initiative supports the importance of parent-infant contact so for example they really promoted um, uh, skin-to-skin contact immediately after birth for example and and, and facilitating breastfeeding and not taking babies away from their mothers at night to a nursery so the baby friendly initiative was really important for that and um, although it was before my time Helen Ball and the lab director was quite um, influential in developing their their policies. And they are one of our partners in the development of our public and healthcare professional facing website which is the Infant Sleep Information Source, uh, which has the very memorable acronym ISIS. Uh, So it's isisonline.org.uk and that's where we translate research for public consumption. In terms of actual interventions, uh, several years ago we trialled a new kind of leaflet in uh, Blackpool, which is um, in Lancashire on the west coast, north west coast. And we designed this leaflet um, because people kept telling us that you couldn't give people nuanced information about bed sharing and factors which are related to it and make it um, hazardous because you needed to give people simple messages, you know, don't smoke don't bed share, you know, put your baby <coughs> back to sleep. And, and people would argue um, that parents were unable to, um, uh, to understand and to retain more complex information. So we developed this leaflet to test that and see if they could actually um, take on more um, nuanced st- information. And the leaflet covered all um, key sleeping environments, but it had a particular focus on bed sharing. It um, explained the benefits for breastfeeding and bonding and so on and so forth. Um, it explained um, the potential risks. And it contained a simple checklist where people could ask themselves, did I smoke in pregnancy? Um, you know, uh, Did I have a drink last night? Um, and they could reuse that after the baby was born. They were given this leaflet antenatally, but they were encouraged to reuse it after the baby was born. And to reevaluate their circumstances, because, you know, people don't necessarily have a drink every single night, you know, but suddenly at two months, you know, peak this age, people might think, right, I'm going to have a couple of glasses of wine, and we fall asleep, bed-sharing, they need to be aware that it's um, hazardous. Um, And we did um, an evaluation of this, which um, compared people who didn't have the leaflet with people who did find the leaflet, have the leaflet, and we found significantly better knowledge um, about SIDS risks in all environments, um, bed sharing benefits and bed sharing contraindications in the intervention group. So we did find a statistically significant improvement, uh, I shouldn't say improvement because it wasn't controlled, but um, more knowledge of these factors in people who did receive the leaflet. So that was great, um, but what this didn't do and what uh, the BFI um, initiative really doesn't do is say okay then? What about the mums and babies who fall, who do fall into the higher risk group? You know we've spent the last much the last 20 years arguing that people who be- breastfeed, um, you know, should be made aware of the benefits, and it's great for breastfeeding, and it's very you know um, unlikely to be hazardous for their babies um, and so on and so forth. But the problem is, um, what do people who fall into a higher risk group do with these babies who don't want to settle at night, because they experience all the same problems of sleep deprivation and crying babies um, and so on. (coughs) And we do find higher rates of SIDS in groups where um, these behaviours are more prevalent. So we find um, higher rates of SIDS in um, lower socioeconomic groups in in the UK, in black communities in the US, um, in Maori populations in um, New Zealand, for example. Um, so we need some novel solutions, because again, it's fine telling people not to do it, but you, you really need to provide them with an alternative, something that's going to work for their um, circumstances and for their cultural preferences. The first of these I'm going to show you is called the Wach-Kera, and this was invented, if you like, by a guy called David and Tiffany Leach in 2006. And it's basically um, uh, an infant sleep basket, which is woven from flax. Um, And he implemented this um, within the Maori community in New Zealand, which experiences a very, very high rate of SIDS um, due to a cultural preference for bed sharing, but also high rates of smoking and high rates of alcohol consumption. Um, And what David um, figured was that this uses um, traditional Maori techniques with um, weaving with flax, and also um, sort of takes us back to um, a traditional sleeping space which was used um, for babies. And the, and the name wahakura means to carry a precious object. So we implemented this program because it's culturally appropriate, um, and it enables um, people to have their babies in bed with them, um, but maintaining a separate sleep surface. So it brings together the evolutionary need for close proximity, if not past um, complete contact. Um, it facilitates breastfeeding, um, as I say, it's culturally appropriate, um, and, it, and it sort of fits in with all the recommendations for a separate sleep service. Um, and the programme that went along with this also um, emphasised safety information for using the Wahakura, um, its purpose and parents who received one or were involved in the programme committed themselves to spreading this information amongst their communities. So it was a wider, um, a broader programme than just giving somebody a basket. You know, it was a whole kind of integrated um, affair. Um, but. Despite establishing training programmes to teach people how to weave these and having groups of people weaving these um, baskets, um, they're extremely time costly to produce um, and um, the the supply of them fell well short of uh, the need. So while this was being um, implemented, there was also another alternate intervention which was in development. Um, quite recently, really. This was only being developed during 2010. And it's called the Peppy Pod. And again, peppy, I think, means something like baby or infant, and pod is self-evident. Um, and again, in New Zealand, being developed as a safety option for those vulnerable babies um, when they sleep in settings which are known to increase the risk of SIDS or accidental suffocation. So it was developing as a kind of a sister project, the Raha um, because there was this need for a very low cost and readily available um, option um, that could complement the wakka and also reach more babies. So again, this is being used in the Maori community. Um, so this is kind of this is in development. The um, Peppipod is made of a <coughs> actually uh, basically an under bed storage box, uh, which is covered with a sort of a fabric cover, which is appealing to parents. Um, and it's supplied with a mattress and a sheet and a blanket. You know? And again, it goes along with the sort of safety contract that parents are required to kind of agree that they you know, will use it in this particular way and that they will inform other people in their social group about um, safe infant sleep. Uh, but um, things were... Uh, the need to be close to uh, babies' children and also keep them safe. It uh, really took on um, a whole new meaning for parents um, following the Christchurch earthquake, which some of you remember. This happened in um, t- February 2011, and, and there, was obvi- there was you know, I mean, there was real devastation um, in the area, and there was a real concern for babies' safety. There were limited sleeping um, spaces, and people wanted to keep their babies safe in case there was another earthquake. You know, people were extremely um, Frightened. Um, and so the peppy pods were actually rolled out in, in quite large numbers as a response to this. I think something in the region of 650 pods were supplied as a response to the earthquake. Um, and since then, the um, peppy pod has developed and sort of evolved from its original state. And you can see it's become rather more attractive to look at. It's got nice ventilation slots and so on and so forth. But it still um, adheres to the same principles of being an intervention, which is part of a broader educational package. Um, you know, teaching p- uh, parents about safe sleep and giving them an option for where to put their baby. And you can see, again, it's designed to sit in a parent's bed so the baby could be close, um, but still have its own sleep surface. Uh, all right. So the final um, uh, intervention I want to talk about is one I'm really excited about because it's one of ours, um, and we have just started work on this. And I hope we hope this is a feasibility study, that it's going to become a much much wider um, uh, program of research. Um, and the program, uh, the project is called Let's Talk About Sleep. Um, and it builds really on the idea of the peppy pod but it brings it to the uk so this is a little bit challenging and we don't really know what's going to happen because in new zealand the peppy pod is kind of culturally acceptable it's very well accepted it fits in nicely with um, maori sort of um, infant care practices and and kind of what you know where they want the babies to be um, if you can imagine teenage mums in the northeast of England, it's a very, very different um, culture. It's a very different group of people. Um, but I mean, we think that the principle might work here, and there's certainly a need for it. We need to um, give people an option if they smoked in pregnancy, or if they've had, you know, a, glass, a couple of glasses of wine, or if there's a, you know, a new partner in the bed every night. Um, and yet it, they maybe don't have a crib, the baby won't settle in the crib. Uh, we need to give people options for what to do with their babies. So we're doing um, a feasibility study. Um, we've again got underbed storage boxes, which aren't quite as nice to look at as the quad, but this is just a first trial. Um, and we're recruiting, um, or actually we're recruiting our baseline at the moment, but we will be recruiting high-risk mums um, in the uh, Sunderland area. Um, to take part in this project and see if it's, first of all, just see if it's an acceptable thing. Or will they just laugh and throw it out the window and put the baby back in its sort of Moses basket? Uh, so that's where we're at with this. Um, like the Peppy pod, uh, there's an accompanying uh, sort of training program for healthcare professionals who are involved um, and a leaflet, which is a, a, an evolved kind of version of the, the one I showed you earlier. Uh, so I'm gonna stop there and um, I'm really hoping that um, in a few months time that um, you'll be able to go on our website and you'll be able to find the results of this project because um, I'm hoping by then we'll be taking it further. All right so questions.